Have you ever wondered why some business people are more successful than others? Welcome to The Mentor List, a source of sound advice with your host, David Lewis. The Mentor List specializes in interviews with top business minds. Listen to their stories, list their habits, and most importantly, gather their advice for your career. This is The Mentor List. Hello and welcome to today's episode of The Mentalist. I'm your host, David Lewis, and today we're having a chat with Professor Anne Lytle. Anne has taught, presented, and consulted in organizations and universities across the globe. She served as a consultant to the United Nations in Southeast Asia and a principal investigator for the Hong Kong government to explore negotiation and conflict processes across the Asia-Pacific. She's published in top academic journals, is an active member of the Academy of Management and is a board member and past president of the International Association for Conflict Management. In 2015, Anne took on the role of Professor and Director of Leadership at the Monash Business School at Monash University. This is where, as part of the senior leadership team, she'll work to build the new Monash Business School. I hope you enjoy listening in as much as I enjoyed making this show for you. Okay, Anne, welcome to The Mentalist. Thank you. My pleasure. So we're here at Monash Business School with Anne Lytle. And Anne, would you like to tell the listeners a little bit about yourself? Absolutely. I think one thing that's important to remember about anybody's story is, you know, things don't always go exactly as you planned and and where you end up isn't necessarily where you've started. So I began my life as a really, really shy kid, afraid to talk to people, wouldn't talk to the teachers, wouldn't talk to other kids. Um, And I really loved animals. And for many, many years, actually until I went to university, I was Absolutely positively sure I was going to be a veterinarian. Okay. No question. And, you know, it was interesting. I did. I I got into a very, very excellent university, uh, was in the United States. We we do it in a slightly different way. You would get a first degree in science or biology of some sort. And then after your first four years, you would specialize in veterinary medicine. So I was accepted to my top choice university in neurobiology and science um, very excited about that. And then when I actually started doing what I thought I wanted to do for the rest of my life, I, I discovered that it was a little different from what I had expected. And, um, even though I, I liked the science and I was good at the courses and I got good marks and all the rest of it, I, I started working in veterinary hospitals and, I learned a couple of things. The first thing I learned was that I wasn't really good with the blood and gut stuff. Uh, which was pretty important because if you're going to be cutting up flesh, you better be able to handle it. Um, and I've, I found that that wasn't really something that was a natural thing for me. It was, you know, a bit difficult. But the other thing which was actually maybe even more important was that I discovered there are a lot of people in the world that don't care nearly as much about animals as I do. And how am I going to support myself and make a living from a career where someone might come into your practice and say, my animal's sick, and you say, okay, it's got this problem, it's going to cost this much to fix it. And they say, no, I don't want to pay it. What what do you do with that? And so that, as well as some other experiences I had during that time, I realized, gosh, even, even though I really care, and that's something I feel really passionate about, I don't think that's the direction I want to go for my career. And gosh, what do you do when your whole life has been geared towards something that you now come to this 
kind of sudden realization isn't going to be your life's purpose. Um, and so I was in a bit of a crisis. This was about the age of, of 1920. And at that point, I, I, I guess just by complete chance, complete chance, I took a course called psychopathology. And it so happened, again, by complete chance, that the professor was somebody that I really connected with, somebody that I developed actually a really, really close mentoring relationship with uh, that lasted over the course of the next four to five years. And the content to me was so fascinating that I started to realize, gosh, maybe, maybe there's an alternative. Maybe there's something else that I can be as interested in as this thing I thought I was going to do all my life. And that began the next step of, of the journey was having that flexibility to say, you know what, it's okay that I'm changing gears. It's okay to do something different or something new. And, you know, I don't have to beat myself up about that. So the next phase was in exploring this world of psychology. And initially that exploration of that world of psychology was in a much more clinical sort of sense. So probably over the course of the next couple of years, I started interning and working at mental hospitals, which I discovered pretty quickly I didn't really like. Right. Um, it was hard work. I really respected the people who did it, but it was exhausting and and it was it was very upsetting. One of the things I did in my final couple of years at university and then afterward was I worked full-time managing a system of what we called halfway houses in the United States, which which are places where people that have been in mental institutions but hopefully aren't really very dangerous um, are out in supported living and living facilities in the community. So uh, the the nonprofit organization would purchase, for example, uh, an eight bedroom house, and they would have eight residents that would live there who were supported by you know a group of mental health workers who would make sure that, you know, everybody did what they were supposed to do and made their way through the day and that they were safe. So I was m managing a, a halfway house in this system. And, you know, I think that the, the time when I realized I was not going to be a, a, a clinical psychotherapist or a clinical psychiatrist was when the very first woman I had met as an intern in the mental hospital, who was a paranoid schizophrenic. And my mentor at that time had told me to go and talk to her, I think for the purpose of teaching me a very important lesson, which was don't share your opinions with a paranoid schizophrenic. You ask them questions, you don't share your opinions because inevitably when you share an opinion, it's about something they feel strongly about and you alienate them because they now believe that you're part of, you know, right. the system of evil, <laughs> uh, which was exactly what I had done um, and made, you know, the usual mistake that every young person makes in that situation. But amazingly, this woman who was a paranoid schizophrenic who had all these delusions about various and sundry things, she ended up as one of my residents in the halfway house some number of years later. And she was everybody's favorite. She was this nice, caring, you know, appeared to be sort of sane when she was medicated person. And everybody really loved her. Uh, and I remember probably one of the last months that I was working at this halfway house, I went in and looked around and I said, well, where's person X? Yeah. And everybody's head went down and kind of didn't really want to answer. And, and they said, well, she's gone back. So what do you what do you mean she's gone back? Well, she's she's had a relapse. 
And I went to go visit her and literally she was exactly the same as she had been the day three years before okay. when I had met her. So it it was heartbreaking. And, and I guess it was at that moment that I realized, wow, this is not what I want to do for the rest of my life. I am not that person that has the strength yep. to go through this process over and over and over. And And I so respect the people who do. It's very important work, thankless work, but it's very, very important work. So again, I found myself at this career crisis. Gosh, what what do I do? I've, I've had these passions. I've had these things I thought I was really interested in, and both of those haven't really worked out. Gosh, what's next? And I guess it was about that time that I thought, well, I, you know, I, I, I need to go do something. I need to go earn some income. I don't know what I want to do. And I've got to choose something. So I made a decision at that point to apply for graduate school. What do you do when you don't know what you want to do? You go to graduate school. Yep. Which, you know, is funny because now in retrospect, it's easy to create a narrative that it was all planned and it was completely not planned. Uh, because in fact, the graduate school that I applied to, which ended up changing the direction of my life, was something that I didn't even understand. Right. So at that point, I knew I didn't really want to do psychiatry. I didn't want to go to medical school. Um, I didn't want to go to uh, become a, a clinical psychologist, which kind of would take me in this more clinical direction. And I thought, well, I want to go do psychology for people who are normal. And maybe that means I should go to a business school because, you know, people in organizations are kind of normal. <laughs> Yeah, debatable. Yes, I discovered that really wasn't very true much later on. Um, and maybe this means that I can uh, practice psychology and look at psychology and psychological issues within a much more normal population as applied to work. So it was at that point I applied to um, a variety of different business schools in the United States, since that's where I was at the time, in what we call organizational behavior. Now, what I discovered later on once I was lucky enough to be accepted. So I was accepted to the Kellogg Graduate School of Management, which at that time was the best business school in the United States. And that was really exciting. And I thought, wow, finally, I, you know, I've had nothing to do with business up to the, well, you know, with traditional corporate business, we might say up to that point, I'd certainly been involved in organizations. Wow, this is my transition moment. This is the time that I can recreate myself and become something new. So I went to the Kellogg Graduate School of Management, which was quite an extraordinary place at that time, um, and began my study of a PhD in organizational behavior, which I thought was kind of like clinical psychology for normal people. And then I discovered as soon as I got there that none of the professors actually really thought that much of clinical psychology, and, and they were cognitive psychologists, or they were social psychologists, or they were, um, you know, neuropsychologists. Uh, and that was a very different world from what I thought I was getting into. But because I was there, well, I guess I better just keep going for a little while until I figure out what else I want to do if I don't want to stay. And so the next um, number of years was a very interesting journey of finding myself in this context and not actually knowing if that was really what I wanted to do, but not knowing what else to do. And so sticking around kind of waiting for some inspiration. And that's okay, uh, because over the course of the next number of years, I think what happened was, first of all, I met some really important people in my life who ended up, actually a, a particular woman who ended up being probably one of the most important mentors I ever had, who stayed my mentor probably for the next five to, to 10 years. 
Um, and she was a, a very senior, very reputable, uh, high-achieving professor at Kellogg uh, named Jean Brett. And her area of research and study was negotiation. How did you get that mentor? Uh, that's a great question. I, I, again, I think a lot of these things happen by chance. And right. I think once I got there, a lot of the professors there, I, I didn't really resonate with emotionally. I really felt a lot of them engaged in what I had then and have later called intellectual masturbation. (laughs) There were these people who thought they were really important. They did this research and I just didn't really feel it made a difference for anyone. Right. Who cares if you've found one little tiny itsy bitsy relationship between two variables that no person out there in the business world is going to ever care about. And to me, why bother? Um, but the the person in the department who I thought was doing something interesting that mattered was Jean Brett. And so I guess I was drawn to her partly partly because she was a woman, partly because I felt the topic she was looking at and the sort of research she did had a greater level of meaning and relevance to the world. And I think partly because as a, a very young woman coming into that department, I I kind of was looking for a, a role model, a yep. parental figure, if you will. And and she was, in fact, a, quite a parental figure and kind of took me under her wing right. almost as her, you know, long lost daughter. It, that ended up becoming not an, an, an incredibly important professional relationship, but also a very important personal relationship that now, I guess it's, gosh, almost 30 years later. Yep still exists. So, I mean, I still right. see her every year and I still yep. call her and in, engage with her for, for advice. And, and actually now that relationship has become more equal in the sense that I think I've also become a confidant for her in addition to, you know, yeah. just her being my yeah, great. inspiration. But then over the course of the rest of the time that I was at Kellogg, she really directed my you know, my trajectory. And because she was doing research in a certain area and because I wanted to please her and because I, you know, really felt strongly about, about that relationship, just did those things. And then it was lucky, I guess, that I was also interested enough in those things that, that they became interests of mine. The more I spent time learning about them, the more interested I became. And, and she was flexible enough as a mentor and I think this is a quality that you always want to look for in a mentor, that they're not just interested in telling you what they do and in telling you to do the things that they've done, but they're flexible enough to say, hey, you know, I've never done that, but that sounds really interesting. And yeah. hey, let's let's explore that together and let's let's see if we can take that a couple of steps. And so the the thing that she had never done which I was very interested in, was cross-cultural negotiation. That there at this particular time, and this was in the early 1990s, late 1980s, early 1990s, there wasn't a lot of well-respected business research on cross-cultural negotiation. And that that was at a time when in the United States, if you can imagine this, people said, how could you possibly take a job overseas? You'll ruin your career. Yeah, right. Incredibly inwardly focused. And now we look back at that and it's quite embarrassing. Um, But at that time, she was one of the only 
Kellogg faculty who said, you know what, I think this is really important. I think this is a topic that people really are, is relevant for business people that people really want to know about. Let's Let's explore this. And so it turned out over the course of the next number of years, not only did I have the privilege of traveling around the world and collecting data, but being one of the first researchers in that group who was looking at that particular topic and trying to to create some recommendations and some learnings that were valuable for business people about gosh, what do we do when we go overseas? What do we do? How, do? how do we manage those negotiations? How do we manage those relationships? How do we manage conflicts when those conflicts arise? So what, just for the listeners listening in, cross-cultural negotiation, do you want to just give a quick snapshot of uh, what that is? I know it's a life's work. Well, I guess, you know, I guess if we were to put a couple of things forth as a basic structure, you know, cross-cultural negotiation, in a sense is, and we might call it, intercultural negotiation. We have intracultural negotiations, which is when I negotiate with somebody who has a set of cultural values and behaviors and assumptions similar to me. And then intercultural negotiation when those things aren't necessarily the same. And of course, we can have intercultural negotiations that are less extreme in their difference and intercultural negotiations that are more extreme in their difference. And one of the things that we put forth, which had never really been asserted before was, well, look, you have all these process difficulties that, yes, we have communication difficulties when we're different. We have values differences. We have, you know, differences in trying to understand each other and in our our, our ways of going about the process. But at its core, intercultural negotiation should be an opportunity to create value because the creation of value comes from difference. We can only create value if we have different priorities. Right. We can only create value if we want different things and then we trade those things because you care about something a lot more than I care about it and I care about something different more than you care about it. So intercultural negotiation, if we can get past some of those process difficulties, should give us the opportunity to create better solutions. And so that was really the platform on which a lot of our research was done and a lot of the recommendations that ultimately came from that whole research stream that, that you know, now 25 years later has included scores of dissertations, scores of additional, you know, PhD study yep. and lots and lots and lots of research. Fantastic. Great. Okay. Thanks, Anne. So... So what happened next? So what happened next was, um, and again, in the United States, it was a really interesting time because at that point, I actually thought, well, you know, I'm really interested in cross-cultural negotiation. I'm really interested in in how these things play out in real life. Well, gosh, what, what do I do now? I have a PhD. I'm a reasonably young person. What can I do? And it was at that point that I thought, gosh, I'd, I'd, I'd like to go work for the United Nations or, you know, maybe go to a third world country and, you know, look and see how things play out. But it, it, it's hard sometimes as a young person to, to, to break in, to figure out how can I, how can I break into something that's highly specialized or I have a clear view of the, the sorts of questions or issues that are of interest to me. But because I don't really have any real experience, how do you get there? Um, and so I made a decision at that point, which again was 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 kind of not not a clear conscious decision that I thought was going to take me in the right direction, but just a decision that was, gosh, I don't really know how to do anything else. So I guess I'll do the thing that's kind of obvious to do at this point, which yep. was become a university professor because that's 
the career path that seems to be obvious to with my set of qualifications. Yeah. So, did you think? Sorry to interrupt. Do you think your mentor Jean had a big part with that? Well, you know, she was she was really great because again, the 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 most important thing about a mentor is that they don't just think that you should be following their agenda, but that you should follow your own agenda. And she yeah. knew that I had real reservations about having a research career. Um, and that was her career. She, she was a, a, a passionate researcher, loved to do research, loved to teach as well. But her pathway had been a very traditional academic pathway. And she knew that that wasn't really my passion. Right. Um, and so she always encouraged me and said, well, you should, you should go and explore the other things that you want to do. You don't have to have a university career. And I guess that was a really important thing at that time, because even though I did make that first decision, and the reason I made that first decision to follow an academic career was because I thought, you know what, it's harder to get back into academics later than it is to stay in it and just make sure that this isn't what I want to do and, and to explore, well, maybe what's the next direction when I've been able to develop more expertise in this area. So... I also made the decision because I thought, hey, you know, I could go be an academic somewhere else and follow what I think is really important that I don't want to be another American living and working in America, telling everybody else in the world what to do, right. which, you know, at that point was really what most Americans did. Right. So I decided, even though I got an offer at a top U.S. university I also got an offer at a place called the Hong Kong University of Science and Technology, which was okay. an interesting place because it was kind of a startup university before 1997 created to try to stop the brain drain in Hong Kong. And I thought that sounded like a pretty interesting place to go. And I also thought that sounded like an interesting place to go because I didn't love Hong Kong. I didn't really resonate with the culture. And okay. I thought, well, who am I if I'm going to be a cross-cultural conflict researcher? If I go to a place that I love and I love the people and I, you know, I don't yeah. experience any conflict. Um, and so I made the decision to leave the U.S., which at that time, most of my U.S. professors, other than Gene, thought it was crazy. You gave up a job at top 10 University X to go to Hong Kong, this no-name <laughs> place that's outside of the United States. You're crazy. You're ruining your career. So I guess that made me all the more want to do it. Yeah, more driven. So what happened? So look, I went to Hong Kong. I had an amazing six years. I did all kinds of fascinating things. I did get to work for the United Nations. I did get to take sabbaticals in South Africa and China and Japan and Bangkok um, and learned a lot about culture and learned a lot about real life, I guess. Um, but I did have that university position. And, and I guess after a period of time, I realized I really am not passionate about doing research and I want to have more of a real practice life. I want to yeah. do consulting. I, I'm interested in education and development. I'm interested in leadership development and skill development of real people. And so it was at that point that I made the decision to come to Australia um, partly because of some personal things going on in my life at that point, but also because Australia was a place that, I don't know, I could take a bit of a break from being a true expat, you know, go to an English speaking country yeah. for a little while, have a bit of a break and um, begin to explore what can I do other than research. And at that time, 
the institution called the Australian Graduate School of Management was a place that did a lot of executive education. And I was fortunate enough at that time, it was a real time of economic surplus, yep. um, unlike other times <laughs> since. And um, they were really hungry for people that had expertise in these sorts of areas. So I landed in Australia in the year 2000, um, became an executive education machine, um, and probably over the next decade, um, fell into a really, really interesting thing that I was passionate about. I did stop doing the actual research, but I became what I called a knowledge translator or a research translator who was able to take and read the quite boring stuff yep. that comes out of academia and say, okay, well, let me pick and choose what I think is relevant and what matters and figure out ways that I can communicate that to people so that it makes a difference for them. And I guess the the last 15 years of my life have really been focused on that, that goal, that objective, uh, to become a knowledge translator and to be able to find better and better ways of explaining how to do things, whether it be negotiation, whether it be conflict management, whether it be difficult conversations, whether it be leadership. How do we explain to people how to do this stuff in a way that actually changes their behavior? Yeah, sure. Very hard because you'd almost say it's like a soft skill versus, you know, a skill like you'd get in economics where it's a calculation, it's black and white, but here you've really got to resonate with with the content, and I imagine it must be challenging. Yeah, and that's actually taken me to the current phase. So, you know, as a brief summary, stayed doing lots of executive education, um, ended up then moving institutions to do that at a couple of different places, started my own consulting company. So I actually exited out of the world of academia for, you know, it was, I guess it was about eight years uh, and did my own thing under my own banner. And, and that was exciting and fun and of course, what one discovers is that running your own business is way more time-consuming uh, than working for somebody else. Uh, but it was amazing. And, and I would have continued to do that other than the fact that quite recently, well, one year ago, um, Monash University was uh, in a position where they wanted to really recreate and revamp and transform their business school. Uh, and so I got called by Headhunter. Um, they explained what they would like me to apply for, which was the director of leadership. And I said, no, nah, not interested. And uh, that ended up starting a, almost a six-month-long negotiation. Wow, which you're uh, very skilled in. <laughs> which, which another, if I can also give one takeaway from negotiation, it's if you don't need it, you can get a really fantastic, amazing set of terms. Um, so the yeah. best position... So you're teaching negotiations day-to-day and negotiating on this as well. Exactly. So, so um, you know, the best message is negotiating from a position of strength obviously will create a better set of outcomes for you than any any other. That's that's the one single most important factor. So I was I was lucky enough to not only be in a great position of not needing to make a, a transition in my own career. Um, but what I ended up discovering was that what they had to offer me was so compelling and so interesting that that making a jump made sense. Uh, and, and I guess, you know, where I've ended up now is, is really exciting because, you know, even though I didn't expect ever to be a professor, gosh, I, I, I couldn't even speak to people, let alone stand up in yeah. front of, of a group and, and 
you know, if people from my childhood knew now that my job was as a professional presenter, they would be completely shocked. Right. But I guess the passion around what I do now that I never expected to be doing is how do you how do you get people to change their behavior? And and when I look back and I create a narrative around what I have done at each step, well, you know, changing behavior, changing outcomes helping people do something differently, whether it's, you know, from a health perspective of an animal or from the perspective of trying to change a mental patient's situation to, you know, changing people's behavior. I guess that's been a real theme. Yeah. How, do, how do you help people do something better? How do you make people better? How do you help them do something better? And at the moment, probably the most exciting thing um, that's just beginning the new phase of my next career is um, a startup business called Productive Procrastinations. And this startup business, its first product is called Leda, L-E-D-A. And Leda is a, a virtual platform that is a behavior change platform uh, where we are now taking a step away from solely face-to-face -face instruction. So I've been doing face-to-face -face leadership development and skill development and yeah. communication yeah negotiation, conflict management, skill development, how do we now take those skills and rather than making the assumption that if you come to a two-day program in negotiation skills, that somehow you're going to leave that program and be able to apply those skills, well, we know that that doesn't always happen. And we know that the effectiveness of face-to-face -face leadership education is only as good as the application of that knowledge continuously once the person leaves the program. Uh, and so what we're doing with this virtual platform is creating a follow-up tool that, yes, of course, there may be some face-to-face -face education or there may not be, but what you have to do in learning a skill or what you have to do in learning a behavior is to practice it, to continue to apply it, to force yourself to do it. And neurobiologically, what that means is that you're creating a pathway in the brain that reinforces that pathway. Actually, what it's doing is it's creating more myelin around the axons of the nerve cells that make that pathway more automatic. Uh, and so the, the LIDA platform is, is almost like a virtual coach that follows you through the practice of a skill that you've either learned through our, our video content or that you've done in a face-to-face -face program. Right. Sounds very interesting. So is that online or? Uh, we are launching in March 2017. Oh, great. Yeah, look forward to hearing about it. Thanks, Anne. So it sounds like you've got a real clear career path when you look backwards. Maybe uh, not when you're looking forward, but looking backwards, is there any advice you'd have for yourself? Look, I'd, I'd give a, maybe three pieces of advice. One of them might sound provocative, uh, but I'm going to give this piece of advice nonetheless. When I look at leaders, managers, successful business people who, who are more than just technical experts, my first piece of advice is get some psychotherapy. The number of behavioral issues I see uh, that stop people's careers are so many. And the development of a real level of self-awareness about the impact of your behavior on other people is absolutely critical. And in many cases, well, always, your behavior, every every person's behavior is the, the, the product 
of their life experience and especially highly influenced and colored by one's early childhood experiences. And understanding the impact of, of those childhood experiences on how you interact and relate to people in, in your company or in your organization or the rest of your life, of course, is so important. Um, so my first piece of advice is it doesn't mean there's anything wrong with you, but if you want to be a successful leader, you better understand yourself. So piece of advice number one. Piece of advice number two is, you know, don't feel like there has to be uh, an obvious path. Um, it's okay to take a step back and say, you know what? I have absolutely no idea how I got here. And I don't really know exactly how this piece fits into the puzzle. Yeah. Um, if something sounds interesting and you want to explore it, do it because you'll connect the dots once you're there. Um, and one of the things I do now, certainly with the, the students I work with, is to help them create that narrative looking backwards. And it's always possible to create that career narrative looking backwards. Yeah. I guess the third piece of advice I would give is, you know, I, I think as a young person, I, I got really caught up in a lot of little stuff. I'd get really caught up in things like, this isn't fair. Um, you know, it shouldn't happen this way. And, 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 you know, caught up in things that maybe now that I look back weren't really that important. Yeah, okay. So looking back, I would say that third piece of advice is, you know, it's it, it, don't sweat the small stuff. If something doesn't really go like you expected, first of all, you don't have to be right. And maybe that's my fourth piece of advice. <laughs> you don't have to be right and you don't have to know everything. It's okay to be wrong, and it's okay to say that you don't know. Um, and I think that a lot of early career mistakes happen around needing to try to pretend that you did something because you were right or because you knew it, and you really didn't. Yeah, great. Okay, great advice. Thanks for uh, sharing. really resonates with me particularly the understanding yourself point that's come up a few times uh, with other mentors in other episodes. So thanks, Anne. I'm sure that'll resonate with the listeners. And let's move on to habits. So do you want to share some successful habits that you think have helped you along your way? Look, I think that the one habit that I would put forth is, as again, if we're, if we're talking about leadership, if we're talking to, uh, to a group of people who is aspiring to you know, whatever their particular focus or expertise might be to, to lead people in that, that focus or that expertise is you have to care. You have to care about people. If you don't care about people, you shouldn't be a leader and you shouldn't yeah, yeah. be a manager. And how do you represent that caring? I, I guess one of the things that, that people will often say when I interact with them is, how do you remember so many people's names? How do you remember things about them? What's your trick? And I say, well, I, I, I actually don't have a trick. It's not a yeah. trick. The difference is that you you care. That when you're in the moment, you're in the moment. And I, I guess then the word that comes along with that is mindfulness or being present. Yeah. One of the best skills or the best habits that you can develop is to be present. Now, I might use an example from I was with some other business colleagues this weekend. And there's a particular woman who is uh, quite a successful entrepreneur. But one of the things that I think she could do very differently is that 
she has so much going on in her mind. And when she has a conversation with you, she's not there. She's mm-hmm. trying to do 20 things at the same time. She's thinking about the five meetings that she should be at right now and she's not at because she's talking to you or the 20 things that she forgot to do that she's now going to have to remind her assistant to do. Yeah. But in the moment, how does that make people feel? Well, that makes them feel unimportant. And the the last thing that you want whether you're an entrepreneur, whether you're a leader, whether you're somebody's direct supervisor, is for them to feel like they're not important. Yeah, of course. And the way that you show and manifest that you care is by giving people the respect to be present. And so I would recommend for every person aspiring to be a great, even a good leader, is figure out how to clear your mind and be present in the moment, be mindful in the moment, and actually listen to what people say. Yeah again, resonates with me uh, and also a common theme with with other mentors and other episodes. Mm. Okay, thanks, Anne. So the last question or second last question I have um, is about an inspirational quote. Is there one that you wanted to share with us? So actually I'm going to give you two quotes from the Dalai Lama. Uh, one of them is, compassion is not religious business, it's human business. And I think that that that's really important for, for every every leader, every business person to remember, is that at, at its core, all business is ultimately about people. All leadership is ultimately about people. And if if you forget about people and if you forget about the fact that you're dealing with human beings, you'll never really be successful. And 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 I guess that that links to the the second quote, which I, I think in this time when, you know, there's a lot going on in, in the world, there's a, a lot going on on the international stage. You know, we have a U.S. election that's literally going to be happening in 48 hours, which could change the direction and the fate of the world. Yes, well, that result will be well and truly out and Trump will either be in or out. So who knows? Yes, it will. Uh, and I guess that that quote again by the Dalai Lama is, if you think you're too small to make a difference... Try sleeping with a mosquito. (laughs) I guess my hope for everyone, but especially for those people that aspire to being in leadership positions is, you know, we're coming into an era where each and every one of us has the potential opportunity to really make a difference, to, to, to look at what's not working, to look at the things in the world that, that we're not happy with. And, and to begin to begin to think about how do we create a new system how do how do we create political systems economic systems and structures that that are going to improve upon what we've got because there are so many things about where we are right now that aren't working very well and it is this generation of leaders who are going to figure out first of all how to do it differently but then how do we how do we kind of inspire and compel and propel the world to do it. And I think that will be the greatest challenge of, of this upcoming generation of leaders. Okay. So just one last question, Anne, for the listenership, is what book would you recommend reading? What, what book have you read that you think is a must read? So I have, I have two books. One of them I read recently, but was published in 2009 uh, called Your Brain at Work, uh, actually by an Australian, originally an Australian, named David Rock. Your Brain at Work 
for me personally, was probably one of the most impactful books I've read in the last decade. The reason for that is that it takes it takes a whole host of, of research and findings from the field of neurobiology and neuroscience over the course of the last decade. And it presents them and translates them into a very, very readable form for anybody. It's a very readable book. Uh, he does a great job of creating some beautiful metaphors and stories that help you understand the complexity of, of some of the content and basically tells you how your brain works yeah. and how you can do things better. Um, it's, 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 it's a fascinating, fascinating read. So highly, highly, highly recommend it. Um, I think it's a life-changing book. Yeah. Um, the other book that I would highly recommend and, and I think is, is important for everybody, but certainly even more important for leaders is a book called Difficult Conversations. Now there's a lot of books out there, probably, you know, more than a handful of books out there, 10, 12 books out there about, we have crucial conversations and fierce conversations and difficult conversations and, and all kinds of different titles. And many of those books are, are, are really interesting and, and, and very helpful. My favorite of that set is a book called Difficult Conversations. It's actually not a new, new book, but there's a new edition of it that was put out in 2010. Um, and it's written by a guy named Douglas Stone and Bruce Patton and Sheila Heen, who are from the Harvard Negotiation Project. To me, the book is something that that is critical for anyone that has to give difficult feedback or have a difficult conversation. And I, and I think yeah. that that's, that's the case for for every individual if they're human yeah probably also the ones we put off and stop us procrastinating and you know one of the things that i think is really um critical and important about what the book puts forth is how can i view a difficult conversation how do people usually start difficult conversations and why do they usually go wrong well they go wrong because the way that we start those conversations and engage in those conversations puts people into a defensive mode and once you put a person into a defensive mode you're not going to get the outcome that you want. So how do we try to start a conversation and engage in a conversation that maximizes the chance that the other person is going to hear what we have to say and also that's going to maximize the chance that that the outcome is one of common understanding um, and resolution as opposed to just, you know, people getting defensive, um, having a reaction that's, you know, not particularly logical or, or helpful, um, and try to shift the blame from, you know, this person to that person. And so I think that that book does a really good job more so than I think any book I've ever read in helping people understand how to do that from a very, very practical perspective. Thanks, Anne. So people are listening in, they're uh, working out, they're running, they're walking the dog, they're resonating with what you're saying. How would they go about contacting you? Um, well, look, at, at this particular point, the, I, I don't do individual coaching, so please don't contact me to, to ask to be a, a, an individual coach because there are many people much more skilled at, at doing that than I am. But, you know, the, the, the things that, that I guess are, are really moving forth at this point are, are people interested, for example, organizations who might be interested in the, the LIDA platform, the LIDA software for behavior change, and also folks that are potentially interested in uh, being students for the new Monash MBA, uh, which we're launching in March 2017, uh, which actually is including a whole host of, of leadership content and leadership initiatives that we feel are really a step change different from, from what other uh, 
uh, MBA programs are out there on the market. And certainly people that are interested in some of the sorts of, of issues and questions that I've raised. I'm, I'm always interested in talking to people and hearing about their stories um, and then, you know, helping them identify perhaps a, a, a way that they might move forward with that in terms of their own development training and, um, and education. Probably the best mechanism to, to contact me at this point is either either through LinkedIn, happy to, to link up with people. Uh, also, I do have a, an anlidle.com website, which does have a, a, a contact place and screen, which channels through to my email, and also the Monash uh, University website, um, where, of course, I have a profile and, and listed as part of the leadership team, and I can always be contacted uh, through Monash University. Great. Okay. Thanks, Anne. So I'll have the links to both your website, how to contact you, and yeah, all sorts of other interesting information and also links to other Mentalist episodes. And you can find that at www.mentalist.com.au. So Anne, just before we sign off, and I'd be, I'd be killing myself if I didn't ask you this. So, you know, you've devoted yourself to negotiations. I've sat through your negotiations classes um, and really enjoyed them, and they've actually paid for themselves tenfold <laughs> with the subsequent negotiation, whether it's a car, a house, or um, just negotiating with my wife who takes the rubbish out. So I guess my question is, if there's some way to condense that into a, a short sentence or statement, if we're entering in a negotiation, how can we make sure that we get the most out of it. So what, what advice do you have for, for someone that's about to go into a negotiation or does a lot of negotiation? No, it's, you know, it's funny because this is probably one of the most common questions that people ask when they find out that you teach negotiation. I want to answer your question in, in perhaps a slightly different way, which is, you know, a lot of people think about negotiations primarily as being those that I classify as the claiming of value, right? The negotiations that are the one-time transactions. And look, for the most part, that is true. You know, buying a car, oh gosh, you know, the used car salesmen or the car salesmen are people that, that are probably some of the least liked uh, when rated as, as a profession. But actually, the majority of the negotiations that we deal with are not those in which we're primarily concerned about the claiming of value. They're actually the negotiations where there's the chance and the opportunity to create value. And you know, to be honest, I guess I'll I can I guess I'll say this. I I really don't think I'm very good at those negotiations that are focused around the claiming of value. And and part of the reason for that is that you know, I just I don't really want to spend my time haggling for a small amount of money. That's actually not a priority for me anyway. In some cases, yes, of course, haggling for large bits of money is very important. Um, but I would almost rather spend my time exploring things. And, uh, and I'll, I'll, I'll close with a very short story. Um, so when I was moving from Sydney to Melbourne a year ago, I was in the position where I had a second car uh, that I knew I wasn't going to breast. Certainly, I'm not going to drive two cars down to Melbourne. And and it had just been a car that I had ended up having from other circumstances and just hadn't really had the heart to get rid of it. And so I did what everybody does. Of course, you list your car on one of the various and sundry websites and, you know, got a call from someone. And of course, I was thinking, oh, gosh, I can't think of anything less enjoyable than selling or buying a car on yeah, one of okay. these sites. It's just a, it's such an unpleasant and, you know, I'm dreading this whole process, even though I know a fair amount about negotiation. And it was really interesting because the person that ended up buying the car was a very, very nice man. And um, he came with his family and his wife and his kids. And 
we had some great conversations and I was very, very transparent about all of the issues around the car that I thought would be important for a person to know. And he really appreciated the fact that I was really honest about, look, here's this scratch and here's this thing. And this is the issue that if, you know, if a mechanic were to look at it, they would probably tell you that this would be the thing that probably needs to get fixed next. Yep. Yep. And, you know, it was fascinating because here was this context where everybody assumes everyone else is trying to screw each other over. And it turns out that I'm still in touch with this guy that bought my car a year and a half ago. And we became friends and he, he did, uh, you know, we, we did have his car. He did ask me, how would you feel about having my car taken, taken, having the car taken to my mechanic? I just, you know, obviously want to do some due, due diligence. I said, well, obviously that makes perfect sense, of course. And it turns out that his mechanic was so fantastic that I ended up then going to that mechanic. So there were all these relationships that ended up getting created as a result of this sale that occurred. Fantastic. And, um, and this friendship and relationship that's, that's occurred as a result uh, and and actually a little bit more faith in the human re- race that that occurred as a result of of this transaction. I think for both of us who realized, you know, at our core, most human beings are actually good. And when you respect somebody and you you trust them and you are transparent with them and you tell them what's going on, you actually can get a great outcome regardless. You don't have to be a jerk. You don't have yep. to try to screw people over. And selling a used car can actually be a really affirming experience. Um, and I, 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 I like to think of negotiations as being opportunities to create value, even when you didn't necessarily think you could. Fantastic. Yeah. Thanks, Anne. Great little story to, to finish up on there. But I've certainly enjoyed having a chat today. And we're, as you can tell, we're on site. I think there's been a truck reversing or a forklift buzzing around. We're here at uh, Monash Business School. So, yeah, thank you very much, Anne. And for everyone else listening in, hop onto the website. And also, if you really want to help out the show, hop onto iTunes or you might already be on iTunes. Really appreciate it if you could subscribe, rate, and review. It, it helps the show phenomenally in terms of uh, rankings on iTunes. So, until next week, thanks a lot. Thank you for listening to The Mentor List with your host, David Lewis. If you like what you're hearing on The Mentor List, The best way to support the show is to take just a few seconds to leave a rating and comment over on iTunes. You can also find further information about this show and links to further episodes at www.mentorlist.com.au. Until next time, this is The Mentor List.